Well, good morning, Antioch. So good to have you with us today, especially those of you that are visitors or guests or friends uh, that are here with us for the first time. So glad to have you and uh, hope that you're able to connect with God and others in a meaningful way today. We're really stoked that you're here. Uh, my name's Pete. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a beautiful, brisk fall day. We're rocking sweaters and coats for the first time. And I'm a little nervous I'll get a little hot uh, in a sweater on the lights, and my plan B was to strip it off, but I realized I've only got a half shirt on under this, so you don't want to see that, but I'll just sweat if that's where we are. But um, Before we dive into the message for this morning, uh, you may remember that for about the last year or so, we have been... Uh, running a program at the church called the Pastoral Residency. And it's essentially kind of modeled after the world of medicine and how uh, medical professionals are trained up in hospitals through internships and residencies. We sort of stole that idea and said, we want to be a church that's committed not just to being the church, but also to raising up the next generation of kingdom leaders. And so you have hospitals that are service hospitals, and then you have hospitals that are teaching hospitals. And um, we want to be a teaching church, meaning we're, we're committed to raising up the next generation. And so part of that is this residency program, which we've had uh, several residents for the last uh, four years. I don't know why I quoted that. They are. That's what they really are. It's not code for anything else. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've had four residents this last year, and this morning we're going to celebrate a success story of our pastoral residency program, and that success story has to do with our very own Mike and Tiff Ribera. And um, you, you will know the Ribera family. They've been a core part of Antioch for uh, many years now, since close to the beginning. And uh, Mike's been part of this program all year and has served and has eagerly uh, learned and engaged his, mi his mind and his heart and his body and his soul in serving the Lord and submitting to a process of preparing himself for a life of vocational kingdom ministry. And as of yesterday, is that right? <laughs> tomorrow, okay, we got one more day. As of tomorrow, uh, Mike will officially begin his new position as the director of oper operations at a place called Camp Cascade, which is a uh, camp ministry um, not here. And so that's the bummer part of this, that we are sending uh, the Riberas to Camp Cascade, which is kind of over towards Salem, between Detroit Lake and Salem. Beautiful camping ministry um, that's devoted to creating space for children and students and adults and churches and leaders to come away and to, uh, to be refreshed and to be challenged and, and engaged in, uh, in Christ. And so Mike and Tiff have accepted a position um, as the new directors of that camp. And uh, as we come to the end of their residency program, as hard as it is to say goodbye to someone like this family, uh, we really do celebrate that we're getting to send them. So they're not leaving, they're being sent. There's a big difference, right? And we understand at the heart of the gospel, even something like John 3.16 would say that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so God-like love has to do with giving away, has to do with taking the best of what you have and giving it away for the greater good. And that's what we are uh, doing with Mike and Tiff this morning. So if 
you don't know, Mike and Tiff have been involved in leading um, young adults here at Antioch for the last year. Mike directed the internship program this summer, and uh, you, m- many will recognize him from leading up the kitchen operation and doing all the cooking at summer camp uh, just this last month. And so, really significant ministry roles. They've poured their hearts into this thing, and we love them. We're going to miss them. Personally, I, I will miss them more. I don't know if you know, Tiffany's my cousin. Right, so we go way back. We grew up together. That's kind of how I got this job, if we're honest. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm sending them, but we are, uh, <laughs> but we are connected, and I, I love these guys so much, and so incredibly grateful for the season that we've had um, to to be in community with them, and then really grateful for this uh, this next season and opportunity they have. So if you see them today, why don't you guys stand up real quick in case they don't, uh, don't worry you are. This is Mike and Tiff Ribera. And they're huggers, you know, so get in there. You're going to like it. Um, but we love you guys, and we'll miss you. And uh, it's not that far, so. <laughs> All right. So, pretty cool. Um, if you got a Bible, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And we're going to continue on our fall teaching series through this ancient, ancient piece of Christian writing. And uh, last week we came about to the middle of chapter 2, so we're going to pick up right where we left off and finish up chapter 2 this morning. Um, Just to remind you, this is a letter. We call it a book of the Bible, but really it's a letter. And it was composed by the Apostle Paul, who was one of the earliest Christian uh, missionaries and church planters and pastors. Um, One of the guys that God used mightily to build the early uh, expressions of Jesus' church here on earth. And uh, one of the places that he visited was this town known as Thessalonica. And uh, Paul went there and he pro- proclaimed to them the good news about Christ and, and his kingdom. And um, some of the people in Thessalonica trusted Jesus and became Christ followers. They began gathering together and the result is what we call a church. And so Paul was with these people for a season and then Due to the uh, immense persecution and opposition that these people were facing from kind of the dominant political and religious structures of the day, Paul was forced to flee. And so he is now writing as a way of continuing to pastor or to teach or to lead um, this group of early Christians. um, And he's doing this from a distance. And so this church is a young church. And they're facing incredible persecution. Um, To claim that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, uh, is the kind of thing that didn't go over incredibly well. Okay, And so um, we go through this entire letter and get this sense of Paul pleading with them or encouraging them to persevere, to stick with it. I know that it's hard. I know that you're going through suffering and persecution. I know it would be really tempting just to throw in the towel on this whole Jesus and gospel thing. And Paul's saying, I really want to encourage you to stick with it. Don't leave. And don't believe all the nasty things that are being said about me. He's going, it's, it's just not true. You know that. You observed my life. You know that. So hold fast what is good. Hold on 
to Jesus and his gospel. Don't turn. Don't give up on him. Don't let him go, even though I know you may feel like it. That's what Paul's writing in this letter. We're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we thank God continually, because you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. We'll stop there for this morning. I want to spend a little bit of time trying to get clear about what Paul is saying and uh, try to understand as well as we can what these first hearers or readers of this letter uh, were intended to understood in Paul's writing. And so in verse 13, Paul now kind of turns his tone to one of thanksgiving. As a shepherd, as a father in the faith, as the pastor who planted this church, he's going, I want you to know that I'm so thankful for you guys. I'm so thankful, and the thing that I've seen in you that causes me to thank God the most is that you took this word of God that you heard from me And you understood that it wasn't just me, Paul, sharing a bunch of my thoughts or beliefs or ideas or perspectives, but you understood that somehow, miraculously and mysteriously, God's word was coming out of my mouth. And Paul says, you believed it, you accepted it, you received it. And he goes, can I just tell you, that's pretty cool. Like, I'm super thankful that you were able to hear the word of God through my mouth. And he thanks God for that. Now, oftentimes, when we use or hear the phrase word of God, what do we tend to think of? The Bible, right? So one of the names or titles for the scriptures is God's word or the word of God. And so we would affirm 100% that the Bible is the word of God contains God's word or God's self-revelation to humanity in the written form in this beautiful, mysterious book that goes back thousands of years in different cultures and continents and languages. Somehow, in it, God's word is contained and revealed to us. But when Paul speaks of the word of God, in most of the New Testament and specifically in this passage, he isn't specifically referring to the Bible. Partly because he's 
writing the Bible as he speaks, right? So they didn't have the whole thing that we know as the Bible. But the context makes it clear, both here and many other places where Paul uses this phrase, that when he talks about the word of God, he's talking about the gospel. When he speaks of God's word, he's speaking of the gospel. Gospel's a word that literally means good news. He's speaking about the announcement of the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. The story of who God is and what God has done in the person and work of Christ to bring salvation to his people and the restoration of all things. And so five times already in 1 Thessalonians, Paul has used the word gospel. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 2, verse 2, 4, 8, 9, he uses this word gospel over and over again, referring to or equating the word gospel with the message that he's proclaimed to them. And so when Paul talks about the word of God as the gospel, the message that he's repeatedly been entrusted with and tried to communicate with them, to them, what's he referring to? What is the gospel? It'd be a good place for us to start this morning. Now in this text, Paul doesn't give us a full definition or explanation of the Christian gospel. Uh, he assumes that they had been paying attention as he had been teaching and as he had been writing and as he had been discipling amongst them, he's like, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the gospel. But for us, uh, not being in this first community of readers, we may need a little bit of help. Now, for a lot of us that have grown up around the Christian faith and been involved in church, Sunday school, youth group, maybe even Awana, if you got a little red vest somewhere, you know what I'm talking about, right? When we hear a word like gospel, um, we think back to the early days of our Christian relationship. We think back to like maybe the very first few basic things that were told to us or explained to us about, uh, about God or about Jesus or about what it means to be saved. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we, I mean as modern American evangelicals, we equate the gospel with what you might call the plan for salvation. These are the ABCs of the Christian faith. These are a few core doctrines that even as a little kid, you could understand and believe. And when we say, I'm gonna share the gospel or explain the gospel to someone, that's what we typically mean. Like these really elementary, basic building blocks of Christianity. And um, there is something to that. It's not entirely off base, but one of the problems there is that the gospel ends up being left behind as we develop and as we grow and as we mature, mature into the image of Christ. We tend to think, okay, yeah, the gospel. I remember that from Awanas back in the 80s. Um, but now I'm on to bigger things. I'm on to better things. I'm on to deeper things and higher thoughts. And that's just not at all how Paul and other writers in the Bible talk about this thing called the gospel. They never refer to it as something that simply is just like for baby Christians, and then once you get that, you move on to the good stuff. Like the gospel isn't depicted as baby food or as milk from a mother. It's depicted as something much bigger, much more robust, much more enduring and essential to all of life 
and even to all of history than just these basic baby truths. And so Tim Keller would say the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z, right? It's not, it doesn't just contain the good news about how we come into relationship with God through Jesus, but it also contains the very power and the depths and the truth and the wisdom and the knowledge and the identity that we need to stay in that relationship, to grow in that relationship, to thrive and to mature and to reproduce and to join God on his mission in the world. It's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z. We never outgrow it. We never get too mature or too smart for the gospel of Jesus. Now also, a lot of times when we think, well, in that kind of small, early stage of thinking about the gospel, we think, well, what is it? What would be the gospel? And if I had a sentence, many of us might say something like, the gospel is that I'm a sinner, and therefore I deserve to be separated from God, but God loves me and sent his son to die for my sins, so now I can be forgiven and go to heaven when I die. That's the gospel. Now, I think most of that's pretty much true, right? I think that's mostly biblical truth, but again, to say that couple sentences is the gospel of Jesus just sells this thing way, way too short, right? I have a couple problems with the little gospel I just gave you. The first is, who is that gospel story about? It was about Pete Kelly, and how he's a sinner, and how God loves him, and Jesus died for him, and now Pete gets to go to heaven when he dies. Now, that's good news for me, right? Um, but you don't really care, right? Somehow, if the gospel of Jesus isn't about Jesus, then it's probably not the gospel of Jesus, right? Now, it includes good news for me and you, and we think everybody, but that's not how we typically tell the story. So that's my first problem with it. The second problem with it is it doesn't really even sound like good news in general. And I'm convinced of this, that many of the ways that we as the church have communicated our version of the gospel to the, co the culture around us and to the watching world, in our devotion to be as clear or true or black and white as possible, oftentimes what comes out of our mouth, it may be true, but it's presented in such a way that the world around us hopes that it's not. If the word gospel means good news, then I think we need to learn why it's good news and learn how to communicate the gospel in a way that sounds like good news. So good, in fact, that even people who can't believe it wish they could. So good that people would say, man, for whatever reason, I have an intellectual or a personal or a psychological barrier that would keep me from affirming that. Dang, that sounds awesome. Man, I wish that was true. I wish I could believe that. Now that sounds like the kind of gospel that Paul was willing to risk his life for. That's the kind of gospel that these early Christians in Thessalonica rallied and shaped their lives around against all persecution and opposition. And they did it joyfully. Because this is good news we can believe in. So several years ago, I set out on this endeavor to come up with the clearest and most complete short summary of the gospel I could. And it's been a work in progress really for about five or six years now for me. I keep it as a file on my desktop. 
And uh, regularly in my reading, in my prayer, in my thinking, in my conversation, I'm coming back to it in my mind and then literally opening up the file and trying to continue to clarify, to make this thing, yes, more and more true in terms of corresponding to what God has revealed in Scripture and, and His Son, but also more and more clear and compelling. And so I'll share with you where I'm at so far. And uh, this is my take at the gospel in a couple of paragraphs that obviously doesn't include everything you could say about who God is and what he's done, but it's my best shot at where we are today. So, what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ, God himself has broken into human history, lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death we were supposed to die, victoriously risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and launched a cosmic revolution to make all things new, including us. When we hear and believe this news, repenting of our sin and trusting in the person and work of Christ, God's restorative power comes upon us, and we are given new and eternal life, forgiven of our sins, adopted by the Father, united with Christ, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to join God on his mission to restore all things while we eagerly await Christ's return. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it's a brilliant piece of writing, but I'm saying you hear what we're trying to say there, right? You get that this story, this announcement, this news, like, whoa, what if that was actually true? That would be very, very good news. That God's mission just isn't about taking Pete Kelly away to heaven when he dies. It's about bringing heaven to earth and making all things new and taking everything that's broken and decayed and backwards about the world we currently inhabit and redeeming it and restoring it and bringing reconciliation and peace to the relationships between God and humanity and the rest of creation. Like, that's what God is up to in the world. That's why in Jesus he broke into human history and did all that he did. His life and ministry, his teachings and miracles, his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, the giving of his spirit. Why? Because God so loved the world that God's on a mission to renew this thing, to make it whole and new and better than new. And guess what? That mission includes us. That as God is redeeming and renewing all creation and all people, he's also doing that for Pete Kelly. He's also raising the dead in me. He's also redeeming the broken and sinful and shameful parts of my life and story. He's also making a new human being here and then Amongst us, this new humanity is being called forth that are both the recipients of this good news as well as now invited to become messengers of it. Those that would live as, as people who believe this story, who have received it, who have accepted it, not just as Paul's words or as Ken's words or as Pete's words, but as the very word of God, this is what God is up to in the world. 
So this gospel not only would then create the church, whether the church in Thessalonica or the church in Bend, Oregon, but this gospel also commissions the church. It also entrusts us with this beautiful message, with this incredible proclamation and announcement that in Jesus, God is making a new world and restoring all things back to himself. And one day, we have a world where there will be no more injustice, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, no more country music, no more duck fans, right? Like everything, everything is made better. So any summary of the gospel is going to be incomplete, right? Because I could and should, actually, if I really wanted to tell this story, I could start at creation. No, I should start before creation when you have Father, Son, and Spirit endlessly loving and relating to one another and then creating out of that, right? So we could add tons more context to this story. But what I'm simply trying to do is combine what's often referred to as the gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus into one gospel, Right? In some ways, it's the thing that's divided Christianity in terms, into the right and left theologically. And the gospel about Jesus is often expressed as the good news about personal forgiveness and a, that I'm an adopted child of God and that I've been saved and through faith and repentance, I have been reconciled to right relationship with God and now I get to spend eternity with God. Now again, that's not untrue. That is a good stab at the gospel about Jesus that many of us have heard and believed for a long time now. But you also have the gospel of Jesus in the scriptures, and what I simply mean is the gospel that Jesus himself preached. The gospel that he proclaimed and that he practiced and that his very presence was an embodiment of. And that's the gospel of the announcement of God's kingdom coming to earth, bringing hope and freedom to the poor and to the oppressed. And oftentimes within modern Christianity, you have these two camps, and we don't even have language to understand that we're in one camp or the other. We just go, huh, when I hear you talk about Jesus or Christianity or the gospel or, or how do you read the Bible, that's not what I hear. That's not what I see. So you're a heretic, right? As opposed to going, no, we're, we're looking at two different things or like looking at the same thing from two different perspectives. And so what we're trying to do at Antioch is say there's one gospel. The good news about Jesus and the good news of Jesus are one and the same. That yes, there are personal implications in the good news about Jesus, that we can be saved, that we can be adopted and reconciled to God and enjoy eternity with him. And we also become the recipients and the messengers of the gospel of Jesus. That yes, his kingdom is coming to earth. And in him there is hope for the poor and for the oppressed. And we then would be transformed into a community of people, not just sitting around waiting for the end of the world, because we're already saved, but we would be commissioned and join God on his mission to bring heaven to earth and to go wherever we see injustice and pain and suffering. 
and to be God's people and God's presence in those places. And so this summary of the gospel aims to capture both of those things. I don't know if that sounds like five years of work to you, but I worked really hard on that, so I hope you appreciate it. Uh, By the way, December 9th, I'll graduate with a master's degree uh, in theology, applied theology. You know what theology is? (laughs) Don't clap yet. I'm not done. I uh, (laughs) got a couple more papers to write, but theology is theos logos, God words. I've spent five years trying to figure out which words to use when talking about God. Okay. <laughs> That's what I've been up to. Um, you've probably done something a little bit more productive in terms of you know, what you've actually built, but <laughs> we're working really hard to figure out this, is, this important stuff. So when it's all done, we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, you will call me master. That's all I know at this point. <laughs> so. so that's a stab at the gospel. Um, all right, so now what? Well, Paul says something really interesting at the, verse, the end of verse 13, and he goes, he brought this gospel, and the Thessalonian people, they received it, and they accepted it, not as a human word, but as God's word, and now, he says, which indeed, this gospel, is at work in you who believe. So again, this gospel, this story of the good news of who God is and what he's up to in the world through Jesus, it isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago in Israel. It's something that's still happening. And it's not just that, oh yeah, I believed that at Camp Tadmore in fourth grade, so I'm good with the gospel. He's going, no, it's still working in you. This message, this announcement is continuing to redeem and to restore and to renew and to change us into something that we could never be without it. So we have the gospel, but we also have the question now, what does it mean that the gospel is at work in us? What does the gospel do? Or in other words, the gospel itself is the good news about who God is and what he has done, is doing, and will do. It's about him. It's about what God's done. But then there's this question, well, so what's the response? And you'll notice every time in the New Testament when the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, starting early on in the book of Acts, people go, well, okay, so what should we do? Like when the gospel comes forth in clarity, there is this conviction that like, yeah, I can't just hear that and then go on with my life. He's gone, something has to change. Something is going to be affected. And Paul goes, you know what's awesome, Thessalonians? I've seen this gospel at work in your life. This gospel is doing its work in you. It's changing you. It's transforming you. It's maturing you into healed and whole humanity. That's what Paul says. Awesome. I love what I'm seeing. What's the piece of evidence he cites? How does he know that the gospel of Jesus has taken root in the lives of these early Christians in Thessalonica? Verse 14, for you brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, 
So here's how I've seen the gospel take root and bear fruit in your life. You suffered. You suffered. So one of the ways that Paul says the gospel is going to change us and work itself out in our life is in a willingness to suffer. Willingness to suffer, you might say, is proof of discipleship. A willingness to suffer is evidence that the good news of God has come not just into your mind and not just into that part of your life called religion, but has actually sunk down into the core of your being. A willingness to suffer is the evidence that this gospel has touched down in your life. Now, suffering comes in many shapes and forms, right? Kristen and the band led us in this song as well. It dealt with the suffering of a, a man who lost his entire family, right? And so some of the suffering we know simply comes with the fact that we are living in a still unredeemed world. A world that is broken, with bodies that are broken, with families that are broken, with communities and societies that are broken. And therefore, there's this inevitable sense of suffering that comes with a broken and still unredeemed, still fully unredeemed world. Right? And many of us know that. Many of you are coming in today in a season of suffering. And some, you would say, yeah, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world, but man, I'm really struggling with this thing. This thing at work, this thing at home, this thing in you, this loss that you've experienced. My wife Jen spent the day over near Salem yesterday attending the funeral of a friend of ours a 30-year-old mother of two who had an aneurysm and suddenly died. Perfectly healthy, right? Leaves behind a two-year-old and a um, nine-year-old. Right? So Jen drove over to, to mourn with those who mourn, and you're just kind of going, yeah, even in the context of a Christian funeral service where we do say it is well, um, you're confronted with this idea that's like, it's well, but it's, it's, not, it's not going that well, right? Um, and others of you are dealing with incredible fears related to your health or your family or your finances or even just dealing with your own inner turmoil or addiction or pain or abuse, whatever. Like, suffering's real, and we all know that. So that's one source of suffering. There's another source of suffering that Paul speaks of here, and it's it's not just these circumstances that happen to us, but with this group in particular, he's going, the suffering that you're experiencing is the direct result of your bold witness for the gospel. Of you taking your faith in Jesus and going public with it. So it's the suffering that comes as the result of persecution. And that's, again, the context for this entire letter. 
Yes, I'm sure the Thessalonians were dealing with health problems and marriage problems and financial scares and emotional, psychological dissonance within themselves, but the suffering he addresses specifically here is the suffering that, result, that, that comes as a result of persecution. Of them taking seriously this gospel that not just creates the church, but commissions the church. That calls us to go public with our faith and to proclaim that that story about God breaking into human history and Jesus, that's not just true for us. That's public truth. That that's something that God is up to in all of creation. And therefore, it has something to say, not just about religion and spirituality, but it has something to say about um, our bodies, and it has something to say about our economy, and it has something to say about education, and government, and law enforcement, and everything is being reconciled back to God through Jesus. And so, to be people who are not just created, but are commissioned by that gospel, would cause us then to show up in the world with a public faith. Now the trick, of course, is to navigate that calling and to figure out again what would it look like to show and tell this good news in a way that actually sounds like good news to the world around us. That's the goal, but of course, that if the good news is that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not the President, not the United States, not the Democrats or the Republicans, if Jesus is Lord and we are devoted to ordering our lives around his Lordship, that's not always going to go over very well when we go public with it. Now, what I'm not saying is that the persecution, I will use quotes this time, the persecution that we face as modern evangelicals is somehow comparable to the persecution the early church faced, right? Like somebody may give you a thumbs down on Facebook, but they probably won't shoot you for your faith, right? So first of all, let's just be thankful for that. That we are the recipients, the heirs of a faith that came through persecution, a community that was formed largely by opposing forces and persevered in faithfulness to Jesus. We are the recipients of that legacy and we're grateful, right? So I'm not saying, yeah, our persecution is the same as theirs. It's, it's really non-existent in comparison. But here's what I will say and here's where I'm gonna get you. Most of us, we live a version of the Christian faith that isn't ever going to cause us to suffer. We want to witness or bear witness to the gospel. We want to, as publicly as we can, profess and proclaim the good news that Jesus is king. But for the most part, we live a lukewarm Christianity that we will never be persecuted for. For some of us, the people we interact with on a regular basis don't even know that we're Christians. Okay, and I'm not saying they need to know everything about your life and your story and your sketchy past and everything, but do you understand that to be a secret Christian was not a thing 
for these early communities of Christ followers. They would, did not have a category for a secret Christian. It would be like being secretly married, right? Like if somebody that you've known for a while and re relate to and interact with on a regular basis, it comes out several years later, oh my gosh, I didn't know you had a wife, right? If you're secretly married, you're doing it wrong, okay? <laughs> and that's how they would think about what it is to be a Christian, like a private Christian? Like, that you're doing it wrong. This isn't just Christian truth or spiritual truth or personal truth. This is public truth. Christ is king. The kingdom of God is here and is coming. That he is calling to himself a new humanity who's going to reorder their lives around this gospel and be indwelt and empowered by this spirit and become messengers and missionaries of this good news here in our city and to the ends of the earth. A private Christian? A secret Christian? What is that? And there are, we know, many places in the world today, over 50 countries, I believe, where professing Christ will cost you, oftentimes, your life. And our brothers and sisters around the world that are gripped and captivated and transformed by this same gospel, even knowing that they may lose their job, be ripped away from their family, lose their home, and even be executed, our brothers and sisters around the world continue to go public with their faith and proclaim Jesus is Lord. Not me, not the government, not dominant culture. Jesus is Lord. And if that's true, then I can't keep that to myself. Right? Now, I'm not saying go be super annoying, self-righteous, evangelizing Christians, right? That's obviously not what we're saying. So the message is good news, but the medium would need to be as well. The good news is that in Christ, we are new creations. And we are new creations as a foretaste of a new creation that's coming. That what God has done for us, he is going to do for all things. A new heavens and a new earth is coming. If that's true, if that's the kingdom where our citizenship lies, then we can't just keep rolling. As if, yeah, raised my hand at Awanas, we got this. It's going to change us. One last little piece here. Where is this church that Paul's writing to? First, we know that they're in Thessalonica. But secondly, in verse 14, he talks about, oh, it, they're in Thessalonica and then around the area in Judea. And then in verse 14, he uses the word in again. He says, you are in Christ Jesus. Yes, you're in Bend. Yes, you're in Oregon, Northwest, United States. But you're in Christ. Your citizenship is in him and his kingdom. And so don't be surprised if suffering comes your way. Whether it's the suffering that results from a broken world with a broken body or suffering that comes as a result 
of boldly bearing witness to the good news of Christ's kingdom. Don't be surprised that you suffer because you're in Christ. And our Christ is a suffering God. What we see in Jesus is a God who doesn't passively and distantly stand and look at suffering in the world, but a God who dives into it and positions himself to be the recipient of the worst kinds of suffering, who takes our sin, our shame, and our guilt, and he absorbs it on the cross. For me, or for many of us, the symbol of Christianity we would recognize as being the cross. For Protestants, that cross is often empty, representing that Jesus has overcome sin and death. But in older and more traditional versions of the faith, the cross is occupied. Because God's people have always looked upon the suffering Christ and known that that's where I find life. That Jesus didn't suffer and die so we wouldn't have to. He suffered so that in our suffering we could become like him. And when we look upon what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection and everything else, we go, that's where I want to live. That's who I want to be with. That's who I want to be like and become one with so that our sufferings might be like his. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so incredibly grateful for this proclamation of your good news, of your ongoing work in the world through your Son. And I am thankful personally that we are those that have had the chance to hear this good news, because not everybody does. But as those who have heard it and who are invited to believe it and to receive it, we also understand that this news is so big and so good and so true that it's going to change everything. And so I would pray for my brothers and sisters, for my friends that are here today, for this community of Antioch. We want to be a church that believes and lives the gospel of Jesus. We want to be a church like the Thessalonians where the gospel is doing its work, where Jesus is worshiped as Lord and King, the only God. We want to be a church where by your spirit, the image of Jesus is being formed in us more fully and robustly. We want to be a church that loves one another well as representatives of the new humanity and we want to be a church that exists as a conduit for your life and blessing and kingdom and goodness to flow through us to the city and to the ends of the earth. So what's crazy in it all, Lord Jesus, is often many times we are ashamed of you. We don't want to be associated with you or your church. And there's all kinds of reasons. Some of, them, some of them are good. But at the end of the day, it's you who should be ashamed of us and you are not. That you have loved us and accepted us and included us 
in your great plan for the restoration of all things. And so our hearts would simply before you today say, thank you, thank you, thank you. We believe, we rejoice, we repent. Lord Jesus, may your gospel work itself out in us and through us for your glory and for the joy of your world. In Jesus' name, amen.